Your Honor, I see that there is another sign-in sheet with some names on here that may not have got up. So may I hand that up? Yes, that'd be great. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. May it please the court. Kim Brown from Landis Rath and Cobb, appearing today on behalf of FTX Trading Limited and its various debtor affiliates. Your Honor, as set forth in the recently filed amended agenda, there are several matters that have been adjourned. Those are items one through five. Items six through 11 have been resolved with matters submitted under certification of counsel. There are, however, three items where orders have not been entered yet. Those consist of item eight, the debtor's fifth contract rejection order. Item number 10, the interim fee application of Morgan Lewis as counsel to the emergent debtor. And item number 11, the case management order in the FTX Trading versus Samuel Bateman Freed adversary. Just entered that order before I took the bench. Wonderful. Thank you, Your Honor. So that leaves us with item number 12, which is the coin monetization motion. Item 13, which is a related motion related to the investment advisory agreement. Item number 14, the status conference in the Almeda Research versus Platform Life Sciences adversary. And finally, item number 15, which is the interim fee application. And that has been submitted also under certification of counsel. But if Your Honor has any questions, we are, of course, available and ready to answer. I'm still waiting for the, I haven't received the report from the fee examiner. So once I get that, I'll be able to. Certainly. We will ensure that that report is transmitted over to you momentarily. And Your Honor, unless you prefer otherwise, at this time, I'll cede the podium over to Mr. Dietrich, who will be providing the case update. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Andy Dietrich, Solomon and Cromwell. I have, I think, qualified good news, or the beginnings of good news, I hope. We, as Mr. Gluckstein mentioned at the last omnibus hearing, are now, after filing our draft plan July 31, in what I would call the active stage of plan and discussions and negotiations. We released publicly on Monday morning a fairly comprehensive deck of materials about the debtor situation and case, consistent with what we tried to do in the case, periodically providing more kind of more comprehensive public reporting than I think has been standard for debtors, given the number of people who are following what we do. We had meetings, as I think Mr. Gluckstein mentioned, over the last two days with stakeholders in New York City. Those meetings were very well attended. We had representatives of the Official Committee of Creditors, representatives of our ad hoc group of non-U.S. customers, class action plaintiffs who filed the adversary complaint on customer property issues were there as well, representing both U.S. and non-U.S. customers in that adversary. We had principals. We had advisors. The ad hoc group itself had over $850 million of claims represented at the meeting, and if you include claims by the others, it's well over a billion dollars of customer claims in particular represented in those conversations. We talked about the range of issues that were raised in the draft plan, soliciting feedback on its structure and also the specific kind of study questions we gave everyone, and I'm happy to say we had consensus on many issues, including general plan structure. There's still open issues, of course, but we also have consensus, I think, on having a next meeting with the group to try to resolve those open points. 
We also, I think, have broad consensus on the timetable for the case, which is, as um, previously disclosed by the debtors, still aiming to file an amended plan and disclosure statement in the fourth quarter of this year, marching toward solicitation in the first quarter of next year, and uh, hopefully uh, confirmation as early as, um, as early as the, fourth, uh, the beginning of the second quarter. Um, those were constructive conversations, and I think um, we, we really, you know, our sense of the debtors is people made a lot of progress. Obviously, lots of different uh, opinions on intercreditor issues in particular, but as I said, a broad consensus on that we at least had um, the right general approach with some variables and some moving pieces that we filled in. The JPLs were not at those plan meetings yet, but we also are pleased to report we've had, but from the debtor's uh, perspective, some very constructive discussions with the JPLs. So we're looking to have meetings with both the JPLs and with the other stakeholders uh, in the coming week, and hopefully we'll spend um, the rest of September and October trying to get everyone on the same page so we can file a plan that is roughly consensual, hopefully, with most of the people we've heard from, from so far in the case. Uh, Judge Fitzgerald has been very helpful. Uh, she is effectively on call and available to the extent we need her in mediation, both for the JPL and for plan issues. I'm uncertain at this time whether we will need her or not, but we certainly have uh, discussed schedule with her and timetable with her and available dates, so we'll have that capacity in October as well if it's a part of the picture. So I wanted to report that. Again, no, no concrete news, no great announcement, but um, I, I think we, at least from the debtor's perspective, we, we think this process of trying to be inclusive and maximizing public information uh, has been, um, we've had two very good days. Okay. So thank you, Your Honor. All right, thank you. I'll see the podium to Ms. Transley, who I think will talk about the coin monetization motion, and we'll, then I'll pin you real quickly. Your Honor, thank you. Ken Pasquale from Paul Hastings for the Official Creditors Committee. Um, I think from the committee's perspective, just reacting to what Mr. Dietrich just said. We believe the meetings were productive and substantive, um, certainly moving in the right direction. Um, I think Mr. Dietrich acknowledged there is a lot of wood to chop, and all the parties who are at the meeting are, are starting to do that chopping. Um, I think from the committee's perspective, Your Honor, the, the most important item of consensus is that all the parties agreed to expedite the plan process as much as practicable. What that means for the timeline is yet to be seen, uh, but we all agreed the sooner we can get that process rolling, the better. So thank okay. you. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. I'll address items number 12 and 13 on the agenda, which is a coin monetization and the related motion to authorize the debtor's entry and performance into the Galaxy Asset Management Agreement. Your Honor, we filed revised forms of order yesterday evening and this morning. Um, as you see from both of the revised forms and of order. And this afternoon. Yeah, and this afternoon, <laughs> yes, right before the hearing. Um, I think as you can see from the orders, there was a, a lot of redlining, but this is reflective of the fact that we have worked very closely with all of the parties, the U.S. Trustee, the Creditors Committee, the Ad Hoc Committee, Galaxy, the SEC, and numerous other parties who reached out both prior to and after we filed the motion. We're pleased to report that as far as we're aware, everyone's concerns and questions have been addressed in the form of order that we filed right before this hearing, um, as well as for the Galaxy retention order, the order that was filed last evening. Does that include the two 
pro se claimants who filed letters to the court, which I took as objections to the motion. We have not heard from those pro se claimants. They have not reached out to the debtors, and so we have not had any contact with them other than seeing their letter filed on the docket yesterday evening. Okay. I do have a question about the motion as it relates to those objections from the pro se claimants. It's a fundamental issue, I think. The debtor's motion talks about monetizing the debtor's digital assets. Those objections raise a question about whether or not certain digital assets that the debtor holds are the debtor's digital assets. How is that being addressed by the motion? Your Honor, the debtor's view is that the digital assets that we are selling, which may include the assets that are alleged in those claimants' objections, are assets of the debtors, that from the debtor's perspective, those claimants have not asserted or demonstrated any evidence or commenced any actions to demonstrate their property interest in that property or the fact that that property interest is traceable specific to them. We have also had extensive discussions with both the ad hoc committee as well as the class action plaintiffs on these points, and our understanding is that they both support the relief that we've requested. Wasn't there a, and correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't there an adversary proceeding initiated by the ad hoc committee about whether or not the digital assets belong to the debtors or not? Yes, Your Honor. And that hasn't been resolved yet? That has not been resolved, Your Honor, and we understand that they support the relief that we're seeking in this motion. I need to hear from the ad hoc committee. How is that so? How do I say I can enter this order that the debtors can just sell assets that might not belong to them, according to your complaint? Your Honor, Matthew Harvey from Morris, Nichols, Arson, Tunnel, on behalf of the ad hoc committee of non-U.S. customers, FTX.com. Your Honor, I don't, as the debtor opened the hearing with, there were productive discussions over the past couple of days on the substance and construct of the plan as well as the committee highlighted the timing of the plan, and we are hopeful these issues will be resolved in a value-maximizing way for FTX.com customers in connection with the plan. Without prejudicing those discussions or the confidentiality of those discussions, we are supportive of this motion at this time as a way to preserve and maximize value for the debtors' estates, given the information we've been privy to and given the status of these cases. Now, I'll pause to Your Honor and see if my co-counsel, Aaron Broderick, who's on the phone, has anything to add on that. Well, let me ask, is there a way to know? I assume there is because we're talking about crypto assets here, which are supposed to be traceable. So are these assets traceable to someone who specifically deposited them with FTX trading? I'm going to defer to Mr. Dietrich on that because I think he's going to have a strong view on it one way, and then I can respond as well, Your Honor. So I'll cede the podium to the debtor in the first instance, and then I can rise to the extent further necessary. Okay. To say that's a good question, Your Honor, would be an understatement. The easiest way to address this is to acknowledge that the customer letters don't actually assert, identify to us any particular crypto owned by the customers. Generally, as we've said before, customers have deposited, made deposits on the exchange. The exchange, when we say made deposits on the exchange, what we mean is the customer has sent, usually fiat currency of some sort, to a bank, 
sometimes quicker, but usually via currency, and had an app on their phone or a computer terminal that showed them that they had a account to which some cryptocurrency, on, at least on the screen, uh, related. The underlying facts of the situation, which I think we said publicly and to the court previously, um, are that the assets that are available to the debtors as property of the estate uh, do not match what's on the screens of the accounts. So absent a very specific assertion by customers, um, there is no way for us to trace individual cryptocurrency to individual customers. It's all part of one pool. There are assets um, that are associated with the exchange, what we call the dot-com customer pool and the U.S. pool, but they don't necessarily match customer entitlements. And there's, of course, most of our assets are not in those pools, but in various other debtors around our structure that also don't match those individual customer entitlements. The, um, I think as Ms. Cramsley said, the most important thing is that uh, to the extent the customers have an objection to the relief that we're seeking today, the burden is on them to show an interest in property or to specify with particularity what property of ours they're actually you know, stating you know, would belong to them. And um, at least on our review of the letters, we don't see an allegation of specificity that we can respond to. Even if they did, however, say, I owned exactly, you know, I, th I think I had an account with 27 Bitcoin in it and 32 ETH and, and three, you know, Sol. Uh, we still would not necessarily have those underlying assets. And none of the assets that we have are actually attributable to individual customer names. It's all part of one big general blended pool. So on that basis, on that basis, at least our, our, our reading of this is that although there's potentially interesting I'll call them constructive trust arguments on behalf of the customers as a group. When we dispose of cryptocurrency in this motion or otherwise, um, we will be um, making sure we have books and records about where it came from. So if the cryptocurrency was in the customer pool, we'll keep track of that, and those proceeds will be available to customers. Um, classification in our plan, et cetera, subject to confirmation. If the crypto was in the kind of the general pool or Alameda or one of our other debtors, we'll note that and the proceeds will be attributable to that fund. So again, to the extent the customers have an interest in property as a group, we'll be able to say where the proceeds will go, but um, we're not to a point where we think there's any evidence whatsoever that a customer has a unique entitlement to the particular cryptocurrency we're selling. We're not, for example, selling NFTs, which are individually unique. We're only selling these, you know, these assets that are at most a kind of a fungible block, if that makes sense. I guess I'm, I understood from the beginning <coughs> of the case that, that customers could deposit their crypto assets with the debtor, at least FTX trading, and that those, there was a term of service that said that those crypto assets remained the assets of the party who was depositing them, and they did not become the property of FTX trading. Is that not correct? It's not precisely correct. I mean, I think people can read the terms of service for the U.S. and internationally um, in different ways. There's contradictory language in those terms of service, as I think has been pled in the... In the well, I know there's, yeah, there's <coughs> issues about it, but my concern is that issue hasn't been resolved. Right. No, that issue has not, that issue has not been resolved. 
Um, but it, but when you when and it is true that customers could deposit cryptocurrency just like they could deposit cash. But whether they were depositing cash or cryptocurrency, it really just appeared as a as a as a number on a screen. The underlying assets are not traceable to the individual customers. If that makes sense. So it's not like there was each customer. If you, if, if 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 Sally had deposited three Bitcoin, we don't have an account that says three Bitcoin for Sally. If Joe had deposited three Bitcoin, we don't have an account that says three Bitcoin for Joe. What we have is some Bitcoin, some in the customer kind of pool and some in the Alameda pool, but not attributable to individual customers. And so when we dispose of this, we'll be turning it into cash effectively, and the cash will be available for distribution pursuant to the plan. Um, and, um, you know, that's kind of the reality of the situation. If that weren't the reality of the situation, the customer, you know, kind of tracing claim, right? So what, what, what is really the allegation here is not that, you know, the Bitcoin is just fungible, which is, is more of an allegation of, you know, there's something here that we should trace. That tracing argument, of course, is infinite in its, in its capacity. That would apply to every asset in the estate at some level. But a customer could say, I know I have three Bitcoin yeah. on the exchange might not know which particular Bitcoin it is, but there's three Bitcoin on the exchange that belongs to me. That's their argument. And I want it back. I want the Bitcoin back. I don't want the cash. I want the Bitcoin back because I think that's more valuable to me. How do I deal with that? Well, I think that, again, I would say that the burden of proof is on the customer to prove an interest in property, and there's been not, neither a specific allegation nor, nor, um, nor, nor the assertion of an interest in property. Okay. Let me hear from the committee because you guys represent these people. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Erez Gillad, uh, Paul Hastings on behalf of the Official Credit Committee. Um, I think it's fair to say that until now the committee hasn't adopted a formal view. Um, we haven't uh, interpled as of yet in the pending adversary proceeding that Your Honor alluded to earlier. Um, I, would, I would say this. Um, building off of what uh, counsel just mentioned, the assertion of a property interest is specific to the specific property held. So stated differently, it's a customer-by-customer, account-by-account basis. Um, and just to amplify the point that counsel was making, so far there's only been one formal pleading as to the assertion of a property interest, which is that suit that was referenced by Your Honor, the adversary proceeding filed by the Ad Hoc Committee. That group, though, is in support of this motion. So they are clearly comfortable that net-net, the relief sought in the motion yields, I would say, an incremental value to their position relative to the estate. The overall concern that we have is that the debtors have a substantial multi-billion dollar token portfolio available to them right now. And they want to be in a position to maximize that value, to de-risk their token portfolio, and ultimately to dollarize the tokens so that they can maximize cash distributions at the end of the case. And in order to preserve, um, in order to implement best practices, they retained an investment advisor to do that over an appropriate period of time utilizing a, maximi a value maximizing strategy. And to do that, we need to begin that process now. Were the debtors forced to wait on the relief that's being requested, they would be forced then in order, if they were to try and facilitate cash distributions to the estate, 
they'd be forced to monetize a significant portion of digital assets over a shorter period of time, which we are concerned could result in less optimal pricing. So from our perspective, we do think the court has before it the necessary support from the parties that have actually asserted the actual property interest. And in terms of what is in the overall net benefit of the estate, we do think the relief is appropriate at this time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Did the ad hoc committee want to say anything further? Thank you, Your Honor. And again, for the record, Matthew Harvey from Morris Nichols Arston Tunnel on behalf of the ad hoc committee. Well, we don't necessarily agree with everything the debtor said about the traceability of property interests or the creditors committee in the context of where we are with our litigation, including if you, and Your Honor probably has not studied our complaint, but including that the, one of the ways in which the complaint is pled is in a, what I'll colloquially call to as a pooled or common pool trust theory. Based on the issues the official committee highlighted about the need to dollarize these assets and liquidate them in a market favorable way and over an appropriate period with the assistance and expertise of experts in the area, we are supportive of the motion at this time. Okay. All right. Let me ask before I come back to you, Mr. Dierick, I have, I think one of the pro se claimants is on the line here. He's enlisted as Sam Customer. Are you one of the pro se claimants who filed the letter with the court? Mr. Sam, can you hear me? He's got his hand raised. Can you give me posting rights to his name? He's not going to answer. Okay. Are either of the two pro se claimants who filed the letters with the court on the line? All right. I hear nothing. Okay. Mr. Dierick, back to you. Your Honor, one thing I would just add, again, Matthew Harvey from Morris Nichols on behalf of the Ad Hoc Committee. For the record, to the extent that any of the customers on the line or otherwise who have had issues with us or reached out to the court or sent letters have questions, the counsel of the Ad Hoc Committee and the Ad Hoc Committee's advisors are available for folks to contact, and we're happy to engage with people within the constituency. That's been part of what we've tried to do, and we've been very open about taking phone calls that come in. So just wanted to get on the record that if folks are on the line and have questions, they can reach out to me or my co-counsel at Eversheds, and we're happy to engage with those folks. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Your Honor, I have a couple practical solutions, if they're possible. So the first is, look, we think we can do this because the burden, as I said, is on the customer to specifically allege an interest in property, and they have not. We would note that 363F4 allows us to sell property that's subject to a bona fide dispute. So the code does contemplate the idea that if property is disputed, the estate can go ahead and sell that over the objection. But again, these customers clearly have notice of today's proceeding and have notice of our letter, and they have not even identified the specific property they're alleging an interest in. So we think that probably stands. It is possible for us as the debtor to potentially identify what crypto would belong to these folks. We have not conducted that process, but another possibility here is to go ahead and do that and potentially carve it out in the relief. We'd rather not do that because it ends up being a slippery slope that potentially impairs other customers. 
Thank you. Right. Anything else? All right. Well, I'll let, oh. Then it will block lighting. No, no. <laughs> I, did, I did have an opportunity to review it before I took the bench. Um, well, given that the, uh, uh, the only outstanding objections are the two letters which I entered on the docket and, and took to be objections from certain pro, pro se claimants, and neither of those pro se claimants have appeared uh, to establish their ownership interest in any particular Bitcoin uh, that the debtors might hold or cryptocurrency that the debtors might hold, uh, and that all of the other parties in interest have agreed uh, to the form of order that uh, is requested to be entered. Uh, I will overrule the two pro se uh, objections, and I will approve the order. Thank you very much, Your Honor. Um, Your Honor, related to item number 12 is item number 13, the debtor's motion for authorization to enter into and perform the Galaxy Agreement order. Um, and that was filed last evening along with a revised version of the investment management agreement that likewise has and incorporates all the comments from all the parties. Um, and so we understand that that resolves everybody's issues and concerns as well. Okay. And I have reviewed that. And uh, does anyone else want to be heard on that before I? For the record, Juliet Sarkeesian on behalf of the U.S. Trustee, I do believe that the changes that we made to that order do resolve the U.S. Trustee's issues. Um, I actually rise primarily, Your Honor, to introduce you to a new trial attorney with our office. His name is John Lipschee. Welcome. And Your Honor, he will be working on the FTX cases going forward, so you will be seeing him in your courtroom. Okay. Well, of course, in other cases as well. All right. Thank, Thank you. you, Your Honor. Thank you. Anyone else wish to be heard? I'm satisfied that the uh, the motion is appropriate. I will enter that order. Do we have the final versions of those both uploaded? Uh, yes. Okay, we'll get those up. Next up. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Um, Brian Gluckstein, Sullivan and Cromwell for the debtors. Um, the next item on the agenda, Your Honor, is item 14, which is the initial pretrial conference in the Alameda uh, versus uh, Platform Life Sciences et al. adversary proceeding. Um, Your Honor, with respect to um, this case, uh, we have endeavored, as we've tried to do with all of the adversaries that have been filed uh, so far and we will continue to do, to negotiate um, and submit to the court uh, consensual uh, scheduling orders to obviate the need for unnecessary uh, hearings and, and, and conferences for the court. Um, Your Honor, we're here today because we did submit a proposed uh, case uh, management plan and scheduling order in this adversary proceeding that was negotiated with all defendants uh, and includes um, all of the uh, necessary uh, initial um, schedule and, um, and milestones. Um, the issue, Your Honor, simply is one of the defendants in the case, uh, Platform Life Sciences, um, informed us that they would not uh, agree and sign on to the scheduling order. Um, as we understand it, um, and there's a provision that addresses a negotiated briefing schedule that was contemplated in this order, um, that Platform Life Sciences intends to file a motion to dismiss on the ground that the court lacks personal jurisdiction over this defendant. Um, and as we understand it, they don't want to be bound by the scheduling order and, and participate 
in the case uh, with respect to the milestones that are scheduled to start going forward in November. Um, we have uh, initial uh, disclosures and discovery to commence on November 10th in this adversary proceeding. Um, it's the debtor's position, Your Honor, that the uh, scheduling order provides for a reservation on no waiver of jurisdiction. We don't believe that this scheduling order binding all parties would prejudice um, the, this defendant for any motion that it will make uh, with respect to any of its jurisdictional arguments. We do think it's important that this case uh, stay coordinated with respect to the defendants, that when we hit these milestones in November, um, everybody be subject to uh, the initial phases of discovery. The court, under the schedule that's proposed and that was requested by Platform Life Sciences, would have their motion to dismiss uh, uh, fully briefed uh, by November 20th. And uh, we know the court will address that promptly thereafter the extent that that motion is not granted, um, we don't believe that it makes sense for this defendant to be on a different schedule. Um, so very simply, Your Honor, uh, we would like and request respectfully that the uh, scheduling order be entered in the case, but be uh, done so with respect to all defendants. Okay. Thank you. Mr. Kornfeld, I see you raise your hand. Are you on for uh, Platform Life Sciences? I, I am indeed, Your Honor. Thank you so much. Um, for the record, Alan Kornfeld, Pachowski, Stansfield, and Jones, for actually two defendants. There's Platform Life Sciences Canada. Mr. Kornfeld, I'm going to ask you to maybe to you're you're a little hard to hear. I can hear you okay, but I think other people in the courtroom might not be able to hear you. How is this, Your Honor? Is this better? Yeah, it's about the same. <laughs> Might have to raise the volume on your microphone. That's what I'm going to do. How is this, Your Honor? That's better. Thank you so much. So, as I was saying, Your Honor, they're actually two platform life science defendants that are merged together in paragraph 21 of the complaint. I represent both of them. There's Platform Life Science Canada, and there's Platform Life Sciences Delaware. As Mr. Gluckstein said, usually a, a case management order is, is something that is negotiated, it's resolved, it ends up being non-controversial. The situation is, is different here by way of background, let me try to quickly explain why it's different. Platform Life Science, as its name of, uh, implies, is, is incorporated in Canada. It's a life science company. It does medical clinical trials in developing and, and medium income countries. It's designed to provide clinical trials in those countries that with respect to the world of clinical trials are marginalized. Platform Life Science Delaware is a wholly owned subsidiary of Platform Life Science Canada. It has no functional operations other than to operate as a payment processor for 11 US employees. According to the complaint, Platform Life Science Canada received 53,250,000 in funding 
by wire to its Canadian bank. The plaintiffs that provided the funding are Alameda, the British Virgin Islands Corporation, and FBX, which is Antiguan and Barbudan Corporations. The transfers to Canada came from Alameda and FBX bank accounts in Antigua, Barbuda, and Bitola. No part of the transactions or allegations of the complaint against PLX Canada have a connection to the U.S. Transactions all occurred outside of the U.S. No acts that give rise to the allegations against PLX Canada happened in the U.S. What we plan to do with respect to motion practice on behalf of PLX Canada is to file a 12B2 motion on a Friday, and we will keep the schedule that is set forth in the pretrial order, in the case management order, and we will complete briefing pursuant to that schedule. With respect to PLX Delaware, we will file a 12B6 motion. Now, how does this background relate to the case management order? The problem we face is the problem of waiver of the personal jurisdiction defense. The Third Circuit, in the In Re Asbestos Products Liability Litigation, a 2019 case, and the Supreme Court in, for example, Insurance Corp of Ireland versus Company de Bauxite, which is a 1982 Supreme Court case, and for the record, the Asbestos Products Liability Litigation case is at 921-3-98. The Third Circuit explained in that case that the law is clear with respect to personal jurisdiction, that words alone are insufficient to preserve a personal jurisdiction defense where conduct indicates waiver, and defendants can forfeit the defense even though that conduct is involuntary. And the court goes on to say, in essence, words don't matter. Saying, I preserve, I want to preserve, I reserve all rights with respect to personal jurisdiction doesn't do it. Courts said, behavior that is consistent with waiver and which indicates an intent to litigate the case on the merits is sufficient to constitute waiver, regardless of whether the parties also express an intent to preserve the defense. Well, we've expressed to the debtor the intent to preserve the defense, and we'll express that to the court in the motion that will be filed on Friday, but turning to the case management order, the case management order explicitly, not implicitly, explicitly requires PLS Canada to litigate the case on the merits. And if we sign on to that case management order, we have indicated the intent to litigate on the merits. We've said we're going to make additional disclosures, we're going to engage in document discovery, we're going to engage in deposition discovery, we're going to go to a mediation, we may make a summary judgment motion. We're litigating on the merits, and when we sign on to that order, we're indicating an intent to litigate on the merits. So despite the words in the case management order, which arguably, if not somewhat weakly, seem to say there is some preservation of jurisdiction, but it's more, it's 
when you look at the reference, it's more geared to stern jurisdiction than personal jurisdiction. But even assuming the words in the case management order are a reservation of rights, that is not enough. So here's the workable solution to this conundrum that we're in. We're going to comply with the briefing schedule that is set forth in the case management order. That briefing schedule, subject to the court's availability, would allow us, again with court approval, to have a hearing on the motions on the December omnibus. Frankly, after that hearing, we can have a status conference. We can figure out where we are based on what the court decides. And either the case, at least with respect to PLS Canada, may be someplace else. Or if it's in this court, we may not have the waiver problem that we would have at the present time. So that's our explanation of why we are where we are here. And the proposed solution doesn't appear to prejudice the debtor because the case management order, with respect to other parties, pushes briefing out until later in this year. The only thing we would really not be doing that is contemplated in the case management order is making our initial disclosure and engaging in the document discovery. Your Honor, that's the reason, again, we are where we are. I'm happy to answer any questions. Let me hear from the debtors and see what their response is. Thank you, Your Honor. Brian Gluckstein for the debtors. So I'm not going to respond on the merits of the personal jurisdiction motion. We'll address that in due course. Suffice to say, we disagree. We believe the court does have jurisdiction over the PLS defendants. With respect to this issue, Mr. Kornfeld hits on the issue on the head. We believe that, and this could be briefed if Your Honor would like, but we do believe that the case law is clear that it is a question of what is the level of engagement of the defendant. The schedule that's been set out here and the Third Circuit case in asbestos products liability litigation make very clear, when you read that case, Your Honor, that the facts and circumstances of that case were very unique to that situation. Here, the question is whether or not all the defendants will be commencing the litigation, pursuing the initial disclosures, and importantly, starting discovery on schedule. The schedule that's reflected in the motion for the briefing of the 12B2 motion was agreed to in the context of these defendants being part of this schedule. To the extent that they're not going to be part of the schedule, Your Honor, we would like their motion heard more swiftly. And on the schedule, we would actually propose that they proceed quicker on the schedule set forth in the rules. But, Your Honor, we think that all defendants should proceed together. Document discovery should commence together. The service and response to document discovery while their motion is being considered by the court and heard 
We do not believe waives their defense. We think that defense is preserved. Um, and we think that it's important for this case, for all defendants, uh, to and for the plaintiffs, to begin moving this case forward in lockstep together, Your Honor. Thank you. Well, I, I agree. I think the motion, you, Mr. Kornfeld, you said you're going to file your motion to dismiss on Friday? This Friday? Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. And why can't we move up the, uh, speed up the briefing and get this heard uh, before the end of October instead of the end of November? From our perspective, Your Honor, that's what we would propose to do. If, if, if we think the simplest thing to do is, as we propose, to have everybody bound by the order and to proceed on the schedule. But I agree, Your Honor. If, if the court and Mr. Kornfeld want the court to consider their 12B2 motion in advance of the commencement of the schedule, which has a, the kickoff effectively to the substantive dates in here is November 10th, then we would like a briefing schedule that would uh, allow that motion to be considered, uh, by the, as Your Honor says, by the end of October. Um, under the rules, we could have it briefed as quickly as October 6th. We could extend that slightly. Um, but we don't want to be in a situation where if that motion, as we believe it will be, is denied, that this defendant is on a different track. Okay, so when are you proposing you would file your response to the motion to dismiss? Um, we could, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's 14 days under the rules. We could, we could do that, Your Honor. We could extend that by a week um, and extend their reply deadline a week out, get us to the middle of October. Um, but we are happy to proceed uh, on, the, on the schedule that would be provided. If, we want, if they file it on Friday, um, we could respond uh, in 14 days on the 29th. Okay, why don't we do that? Response in 14 days. Reply brief would be due. Sixth? It'll be the sixth under the rules, Your Honor, yes. Um, so we'll do that as the uh, schedule for the briefing on the motion to dismiss for personal jurisdiction. Um, and we'll have a hearing on. Uh, that's the October 26th. Well, let's do. What did we do before that? Let's do. Uh, October 19th at 10 a.m. I will be kicked out of my courtroom that week because the judges, we have seven courtrooms and eight judges, so um, I'll be, I'll either be in a different courtroom or we'll do the, it's, since it's only an oral argument, we can do it virtually. We'll do it that way. That's fine with theirs, Your Honor. Okay. Fine with us, Your Honor. Thank you so much. All right. And then we'll deal with the scheduling order once we get confirmation. Okay, that's fine, Your Honor. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Your Honor. May I be excused? Yes, thank you. Thank you. All right, anything else for today? Your Honor, very briefly, Mark Hancock of Godfrey and Kong on behalf of the examiner. Uh, obviously, you have item 15 on the agenda, which is the interim fee applications. As Ms. Brown said, there's been a certifi certification of counsel filed. Um, the fee examiner's report was also filed on September 5th at docket 2427. I think the agenda didn't have a reference to that, and I'm not sure whether it made it in the uh, electronic binder that debtors provided, but it is there, and, and I know Ms. Brown can get you a copy of that. Um, I can answer any questions you may have about the fee examiner process, but the fee examiner is also here and can make a, 
couple of brief remarks here. If you would like to, Ron, that would be fine. I know there's we're skipping over some of the fee requests this, this time around, right? For, for some reason. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, Catherine Stadler of Godfrey and Kahn, um, the fee examiner in these proceedings. Um, yes, we are skipping over, or I should say, holding in advance two interim fee applications um, because we are in productive discussions with those professionals exchanging information that may well resolve the concerns that we've articulated. Um, if that should happen, we will work with um, local counsel for the debtors to submit appropriate orders um, under a certification process or in some other way if those issues get resolved. Um, I did want to note, um, just because we're, we came all the way here <laughs> from Wisconsin, um, that I, I should stand up and um, introduce myself and just tell you a little tiny bit about our process. Um, the fee examiner process, in my view, is designed for one primary purpose, and that is to make the court's job in assessing reasonableness and necessity easier. Um, if there is anything that we could do that would make that job easier that we are not doing, we're happy to hear that feedback from you, whether that's data, um, teeing up disputed issues on a real-time basis, um, reporting formats, anything that we can do to make that job easier, um, we're happy to do. Um, the issue of the reserved issues, and, and since you didn't get the report for some reason, you probably haven't read about this yet, but what we attempted to do in our current report is to identify specific issues on which the fee examiner re reserves rights to revisit the issue at the, at the conclusion of the case or at a later um, at a later interim fee hearing. The reason for that is because of um, my assumption, and my dad told me never to do that, <laughs> but I assumed um, that, that your honor and the parties would prefer to have disputed fee issues dealt with when there aren't so many other moving parts in the case. Um, I also believe that there is a decent chance with some of these reserved issues that watching the case play out over time could change my view um, and would alleviate the need for any contested proceeding at all. So for that reason, we have tried to delineate uh, in our report with respect to those applications that are recommended for approval that there are some issues in those, in those applications that we do need to continue to address at an appropriate time. Um, of course, everyone always has the right to object to a final fee application and all issues are technically always reserved, but the course of dealing of parties in these Chapter 11 cases tends to be the expectation that issues will be aired and resolved on an interim basis. Here, the interim fee periods are um, only three months long and our reporting cycle is 45 days. So it doesn't give a lot of time for a long view of some issues that really require a long view. And so um, with that, I just wanted to point out to your honor that, that that's the way we have structured this report uh, and our process. We're trying to be thorough without being picky <laughs> We're trying to be 
uh, responsive without being beholden to professionals or anyone else. Um, and we're trying to be thorough but not overblown. Um, and if at any point we're not walking that line correctly, I hope Your Honor will let us know and uh, know that we will respond appropriately. Thank you. No, I, I, I'm happy with the uh, reports that I've seen so far. I think everything is going appropriately. And I think your approach is the right approach um, so that we don't have to, you know, we can reserve some of these issues if we need to for the long-term view, as you said, and, and just so we're not getting jammed up on fee disputes in the middle of other issues that are going on in the case. So um, I'm happy with uh, the way things I'm not sure what happened with the, the report. I don't know why I didn't, it wasn't brought to my attention on it somehow, but we'll, we'll figure that one out. Do you want to address that, Jim? Okay. Thank you. I'll step down. Thank you, okay. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Kim Brown from Land Track and Cobb. Um, the report was submitted in connection with the interim fee binder and index that was provided last Wednesday. Okay. And I think what might be helpful going forward, if Your Honor would like, perhaps once the fee report is filed, we submit that separately and then also include it with respect to the, you know, the binder so you have it in both places, but it doesn't get lost in the shuffle. And since the hearing has started, we've also emailed a copy um, to Chambers and included Ms. Stadler and Mr. Hancock on that okay. transmission. All right. Thank you. That's fine. That'd be, that would work better. Certainly. Happy to do it. There's a lot of, a lot of paper gets filed. I am very aware, Your Honor. I'm <laughs> happy to assist Chambers however we can. All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you. All right. Anything else for today? All right. Thank you all very much. I appreciate the update. I appreciate the uh, arguments of counsel. And uh, we are adjourned. Everyone have a good weekend. Thank you.